everybody, and welcome to another episode of Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors Podcast. Today, I have Helena Q with me. Helena is a clinical expert as well as the CEO and founder of QMed Consulting in Copenhagen, Denmark. Helena and I will talk about collaborating between clinical and human factors teams during device development with a special focus on best approach and its integration into the device development process, as well as its effects on clinical, use-related, and residual risk analyses. Later on in today's episode, I will introduce our new segment of the show, Let's Get Real, where we drop all filters and stop masking and get real about special and sometimes rather sensitive topics and issues. And of course, I will provide a little sneak preview of our inaugural segment where we talk about failure as a path to innovation and resilient outcomes. As for my guest today, Helena is a longtime collaborator of mine, and we have worked on many projects over the last couple of years. Recently, we put some of our thoughts, learnings, and lessons from the collaborations together in a paper specifically addressing the collaboration between clinical and usability and how such affects specifically use-related risk analyses, but also how it benefits the overall outcome of device development. I have invited Helena on today to have a little discussion about not just the paper, but also to tell the story of the paper and how we came to have those thoughts and insights. And for that, I am most grateful that you're joining us today. Hello, Helena. Hello, Heidi. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. <laughs> of course. So, Helena, how about you just introduce yourself for a second so people know why we collaborated. Yeah, I will do that. I will call myself a medical device specialist, maybe subject matter expert or just a little nerdy around medical devices. <laughs> I learned how to do clinical and have the practical uh, eyes on data collection, really trying to show and demonstrate the value of collecting data that could be used for the end user and prove that the product was safe and performing. And my top level super interest is how do we get all specialities to talk together in common language, making sure that we are sending out safe products that is working and is supporting the patients, basically saving lives. So this is my big passion with devices. This is what I'm very, very interested in. Yeah, and we ended up working on a device that was very different. Nowadays, we would simply say it's a combination product, but it really made us think about the more comprehensive view of the development and the design of it per se as well. And throughout that collaboration, we very quickly noticed that we were missing some of the milestones, some of the definitions that kind of go through risk management, usability, and clinical. And we started to understand that a lot of the things that we were struggling with ultimately came from very, very simplistic 
kind of hiccups, right? Meaning no clear definitions, intended users, intended use, even the use environments, user profiles, use-related risk management. Not that it was missing, but it was more, it was very difficult to follow, to trace all the individual inputs, the design inputs through a lot of the documentation. And especially when we looked at the risks and the mitigations of it from a design perspective, we quickly noticed that it seemed almost like the work had been done a little bit in silos. And it seemed as if had that been done with more foresight, then clinical and usability could have benefited from each other. And not just from being able to know what came out of one in order to feed the other. It was more from a standpoint of supplemental and supporting the data on both sides, meaning had you known, then you could have almost directed data points a little differently or ensured certain data points were collected. And so it could have benefited from, we could say, better planning, but it was more alignment between. And then what we very quickly also discovered then after design validation and human factors, when it came to residual risk analysis, which leads to the risk benefit statement in MDR, we also struggled because that's when we realized that all the other files weren't updated. So it became this constant play of how do we catch up? And I think it was exactly that project that kind of made us approach the next project a little differently. And then as the projects added on, we went at it every time with a fine comb and just tried to align these points better, the endpoints, the data collection points, the risk mitigation points almost. And from that, that's where we started to really have a bigger, I wouldn't say like a bigger idea, but like a broader view of how could we approach this. And I think, Helena, if we think about it from the framework of the MDR and the usability requirements now, especially with the MDR calling them out specifically in the clinical evaluation report, that's where we saw an opportunity and that's what got us to collaborate on our paper. And if you want to go and read our wonderful paper it's called Best Practices for Use-Related Risk Analysis Through Collaboration of Human Factors and Clinical. And we'll put the link in our show description. But Helena, tell me a little bit about your experience and the thought process going into it and how you arrived at it. Because I can most certainly see how we got there, but tell me a little bit about your process, how you were going through it and how you noticed it. I think it comes down to, of course, having worked with this for quite some time, realizing when you work with different teams as a consultant, so I jump into different environments and I see sometimes what works and what doesn't work very well. And I've seen examples, as you also mentioned, where 
working into silos and not taking the benefit of working very early stage in development projects with medical devices and aligning both the expectation to the device and the environments and have this specification of a device in place more or less as early as possible really supports the development. And I call it development, but it is the paper development which is our speciality, right? It is, of course, a physical thing, but we are looking into the papers that the justification and the statements are aligned. So where I see that there could be improvements in some of these teams that are working is that the research and the device development is not linked into the document development and how the different alignment statements between the documents are made appropriately. And this is where we are missing a great opportunity, I think, to benefit from the activities that you have to do while you're working on a medical device and save time and money by doing a proper validation plan. And it's because I'm clinical. I'm sitting with the clinical evaluation report and conducting the clinical study in the end. So I do see how to connect the documentation from our clinical evaluation with actually activities in the clinical study. And I've seen working with you how that actually the same data point can be looked at from a different angle and benefit into the understanding of that specific safety and performance endpoint. And when we did this uh, this article some months ago. When you start looking into, but where do I get these thoughts from? It's actually based on the regulation. And I'm in Europe, so my little Bible is the MDR, the new medical device regulation. And it's not because I see the usability in any headlines in the MDR. But if you look properly, you do see that many of the places where regulation that controls my clinical evaluation it also links to usability. And that was also in the old directive in some of the statements, economic features and the environment. So all of these things that we today would put into a medical device use specification upfront. And if you are a company where you have your teams aligned and you incorporate the thinking behind the device and align on the wording around these specific points, the intended purpose, patients, etc. I do see that it is much easier to go in and do your clinical evaluation. It is most likely, I'm not a usability expert, but this is where your expertise can directly go in and take your statements. We can together do the risk analysis and then conduct our different activities and align them in the end. And as I say, hopefully get safer and better products. Yeah, and it's very interesting when you work through those things, you say that they were in the MDD and the usability requirements, human factors requirements, and they're now in the MDR. But what's so interesting is, yes, they were called out in the MDD, but as you point out, the expert would know. The usability and the human factors person would know what they're looking for. But to the other developers, to the other teams, it wasn't clear that that was usability, where it came from. But in the MDR, even though it's still not specifically a paragraph or a chapter on usability slash human factors, 
It, however, has sneakily put in the usability requirements into your clinical evaluation report. So whether you did it or not, your clinical evaluation report is actually going to make you call it out and address it. So if you didn't do the full development and integrated usability throughout the process, you're actually going to be missing things in the clinical evaluation report later that are certainly going to make or break your development because you can have all these things, you know, great. You can have safety and you can have the product performs and all that stuff, but the regulatory bodies still want to see that you did everything. And I think that's more than fair. We were talking about medical devices. You want to mitigate the risks of those, whether or not those are material risks or use-related risks. They're risks. And so they have to be addressed from a usability perspective. And when we look at these developments, you and I often talk about the fact that we seem to see the most struggle in these teams is when their processes across the teams, across the development teams, aren't really aligned, meaning their milestones and the inputs and outputs of each team aren't really thought of before. Let's be clear, we're not trying to say that they don't have processes in place and they don't think that usability needs to be an input to validate design validation or whatnot. It's more the timing and the detail of it because, as you said, the human factors expert will be able to identify what data point clinical can benefit from and clinical can point out what data usability might benefit from and both touch the risk management file. So in order to mitigate as best possible and be able to make that risk benefit statement later in the residual risk analysis, that the benefits of the product outweigh the risks and you've mitigated as much as possible in the design, those are things that not one team alone can make that decision. And so it requires the input from everybody, but it's interesting that the teams that struggle the most seem to be the ones that don't early enough integrate the minds of the other team and allow them to be a decision authority in the process as well, right? It should be, I think you said to me earlier today or even once before, if you don't give the human factors person the authority to say no in a clinical activity and a clinical specialist the authority to say no in a risk management activity, then you never get to have the input of each specialty and expertise in the entire design development process. And that goes back to many things that we've talked about before where we often see that prototypes already exist when usability joins the team. That's also not something that should be happening. But what's more interesting is your viewpoint from the clinical aspect because it was like this this thing that happened over each collaboration that we had where you noticed, oh, that's so different. And And I think you said once, it's so different when a usability expert who knows what they're looking for is a part of it. And it's not just XYZ company that did a study and you get the report. 
Tell me a little bit more about that thought process when you noticed how different it was between getting the results or the report or the document from a usability team or having somebody actually be an input part Mm. of the team. I think I notice it when, of course, you realize when you end up with a mistake. We learn because there is this thinking process behind what we are doing, but realizing that you've been discussing with engineers an intended purpose and then usability. Start looking into, have you considered this is really difficult because you have to have certain skills or experience to look at this from the other angle. And this is what also the regulation has specified with the intended purpose. So that's why I think that Realizing that the regulation is actually supporting this, but we are not practically doing that because usability is not always obvious, because it's not clear in the regulation where the usability aspects is. Clinical has become that, and it has been very clearly defined in the regulation, but still usability is a little blurry. But it just is quite clear to me the benefit both for the studies and the whole validation that you can push back how you collect data and how you validate the whole concept and even push it back into verification and make the whole process much more efficient and cost-efficient also. But of course, I can't see if you didn't think about usability, all of a sudden it's more expensive, but that's not the point. You will have to do it, otherwise you will, as you say, end up with a mistake, potential disaster when you release the product and nobody can put it together, or they actually wanted another concept and it doesn't fit. And we don't often see it in a clinical study because it's a special environment. It's specially set up. This is how I realized it. And I do see the reflection also in the regulation now in the under the MDR, the intended purpose, specifically asking for user and environment, and in the whole setup of the technical documentation, and then this centralization of the risk management and the clinical evaluation. And this is where I think companies should start benefiting from. We have to, under the MDR, develop a clinical evaluation plan. Everything in MDR is about planning, executing, and reporting. You have to keep your plans up to date, and you have to make sure that you use the same wordings for the documents. So That's a whole different story. But I think usability should also be planned and it should be aligned with the clinical evaluation. You cannot plan your clinical exercises or your activities without knowing the usability exercises because 90% of the times they are linked together. Yeah. What's even more fascinating is you bring up exactly the point is clinical is a very controlled environment. In clinical, you have actual patients. And let's talk about a medical device, surgical environment. You're not going to let somebody just go ham. You're going to have somebody next to them who can walk them through every step in case they forget something, walk the surgeon through something. And that's a very controlled environment. So that's not the case for usability. When you look at human factors validation, we don't allow somebody to help you through it. Or if 
your plan is, and this speaks to your intended purpose and your intended user, if you intend to have training, then you can make things very specific, procedure specific. And then you can control that by having that in your design validation, in your human factor summative study. You can have that element in there. But if that's not the approach you're taking, if that's not your market approach, then that can't be a factor. So it's almost a little bit like you're looking at two different cohorts, like the Mm -hmm. surgeon who's in the clinical trial and the surgeon who's in the human factors study. They get nothing and the others get too much. But to your point, if clinical doesn't consider usability, then what they end up with is different behavior in clinical trials than is realistic and vice versa as well. If we don't have the input from the surgeons or from clinical teams to tell us that XYZ is going to be happening during the procedure or these are the precursors to it, then we set up a human factor study unrealistic also. Because let's be clear, it's also unrealistic to think that a surgeon is going to go into a really risky procedure without familiarizing themselves with the product. So that's also unrealistic. And you and I have talked about this where we want hybrid studies. That was the whole goal with the article that we were writing together. We wanted to see hybrid studies. We wanted to see usability heavily involved in clinical and clinical heavily involved in usability. And we're not saying that clinical now has to be a part of human factors and human factors has to be a part of clinical. All we were thinking was if these teams were more aware of their thinking individually, then they could consider such going into their planning and then that would allow them to benefit of that knowledge and possibly the outcome and typically that's what we started to notice the more we could preach to these teams how important it was that we all shared our thoughts across the teams that the more we could better plan as you say and then with better planning come better outcomes that's just how it works we know that And so one of the biggest things was for us also to see how risk analysis, risk management became incredibly difficult when these teams didn't talk Mm. because you would end up, and I remember one scenario, and I'll let you talk a little bit about that, but we're not pointing fingers, we're not calling out anybody because it is exactly something we've seen many a times, but where we ended up with user needs, use requirements that were product requirements and vice versa, then nobody could validate them because they weren't living in the correct Mm -hmm. environment. They weren't Mm -hmm. living in the correct files, meaning if you don't put use requirements or user needs with the human factors people, then they're not going to consider those. If we don't know they exist, Mm. how are we supposed to design for them, test Mm. them, evaluate them, consider them, analyze them, and even validate them? So what happened a bunch of times to both of us on these projects that we would work together is you would come to me immediately before a validation human factors validation study or summative study or even during or after and we go 
oh, we found user requirements or mm-hmm. user needs, use requirements. And they were living in the product specification under different names. And mm-hmm. how do you correct something like that? You can't plan for it anymore. It's done. We got lucky because we worked so closely together that we were able Almost, we almost had an intuition foresight that we put in these little data points into our tests and evaluations that we collected ultimately what we needed. Mm. But that's benefiting from a very well-oiled machine between you and I. And that isn't always the case. So it was very interesting to see how risk management then became more of a struggle, more of a I don't want to say it's more complicated because it isn't. It's actually becomes easier when you consider all these things. It becomes such a convoluted process to decluster it in the end. And I think that's what you and I had gone through a couple of times where we then saw the light and we were like, what if we did these studies with more hybrid thinking? Mm -hmm. And what if we collaborated closer together? Mm -hmm. And where we ended with the early integration of risk management and clinical and usability human factors working together, which I thought it'd be interesting to see it from your point when you were going through these files and how you saw the whole thing unfold and all of a sudden you realize when you had the eyeshed moment, you go, oh my God, these are user requirements. These are user needs. These are not product needs. I think it's where the, again, the alignment between the teams are not existing and that uh, the development of devices are more considered as essentially as a product development and then there are some services or what you say activities around which is just needed because it's in the regulation and it's not really seen as an input to develop a good product so I think that's where I saw that when this is not happening, we lose track of the data points that needs to be validated in different activities and at different stages. And some part is good for usability and cannot be tested clinical, and some needs to go into verification or validation in animals. And there is an example like foreseeable misuse, which is a hot topic under the MDR. Of course, you can, under a clinical study, look into that, but it's not something that you will go for because it's with patients. It needs to be a very special product if you can, can do that with end users. So this goes to usability and other validation activities. But you have to cross-link it in some way to make it of relevance to each other so that you can say at the end that you have checked for this and that you in your risk assessment can document that it's okay and you have specified it in your instruction. So this is one of the points where I really see that you can see the flow of data points to the different activities and you have to be talking together, be very creative uh, and aligned. And then you will end up with a much better result and not as we did at that time, ending up with data points and just realizing, oh, I thought someone else took care about that because we didn't talk about it. There's a lot of collaborations that you and I could call remediations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's also something that I think would be interesting for our listeners to also understand a little bit more detailed. 
because you speak to something that is a real sticking point. The MDR actually calls out misuse in the clinical. And as you say, you can't do that in clinical. You can't intentionally misuse something that's just not ethical. And that's never going to happen. Rightfully, you assign it to usability human factors. But what's interesting is from a human factors point, when we go through the risk management process from a use-related risk, we look mm-hmm. initially, yeah, if we're going for a 510K or we're going for a product that's very similar to something that's on the market already, you can literally run your mod data searches and come up with your known use problems that already exist on the market with similar products, reportings or whatnot. Those are very helpful tools and nobody's discounting them. But when you are doing a new device that doesn't exist, you can Mm -hmm. only really think of the foreseeable hazards, the foreseeable risks. The unforeseeable are the ones that happen during development, during usability evaluation. Those are things that can't happen in a clinical at least they shouldn't. And that's why usability feeds so well into clinical because if you do not establish some of these sticking points that, let's make an example out of it, if you have an issue that flies under the radar the whole time that can be traced back to a usability issue in the design that then leads to failure of treatment or failure of drug efficacy because of that. And you don't notice that until validation. Mm -hmm. And let's say validation and clinical are parallel. Some do it these days. Some run these parallel. Now you're opening yourself for data points in your clinical that you shouldn't really have had in clinical. Mm -hmm. And now you have to explain them in your clinical evaluation report. And now it gets really complicated. And I think that's what you and I are talking about when we say, yeah, of course, to everybody out there, we totally get it. We know we're not talking about reinventing the wheel and we're not talking about things that we don't already know. We know that early integration of risk management and use-related risk, which means usability into risk management and clinical into usability risk management, We know that an early integration is needed. We know that when you're writing your project plan, your product plan, you should be writing a human factors plan. We know that when you're writing your product specification, you should be writing your use specification. We know all these things. It's not that we don't know that's already existent. What we're saying is the way you collaborate with another, the way you integrate these things with another is the sticking point. Because Mm -hmm. if you don't, have the input from one team in the other and the next. Nobody's saying that you're purposely working in silos, but if that then happens a little bit because of how this whole setup, the structure, your project teams are set up, the processes, the milestones, how they're aligned, that's what we're saying is like you miss these points where you can't go back anymore. How are you going to go back on validating a user need, a use requirement that you didn't know of after Mm. validation. How are you going to do that? Now you Mm. have to run a supplemental study. Mm. But what if your product never considered that during development usability? And now if you want to go into validation and you want to validate these things, you can't. It's not working Mm. because 
whatever you thought was going to work didn't work. These are extreme examples, but they happen. I think especially for these, for new concepts, as you say, we also have within clinical and clinical studies that you have to do a clinical risk assessment for the protocol. And if you have a very new concept and you haven't tested in your usability the different scenarios and know how to, for instance, foreseeable misuse or something that you couldn't really think about, you could have a failure of your study because you didn't test upfront, of course, when you have these really new concepts, most do usability to be prepared for their study. But there are still very new companies and inexperienced companies jump right into, you want know, to test in patients. And I would just calm down. You don't want to prepare for failure here. You do not know what is happening when you get out there in the operating theater or whatever it is. You have to test this in a controlled environment. And I think that's also what usability helps us with is when when something bad happens, how can we fix it now that we are running our study? And you can use the experience from the usability. You will get some insight in how do they manage this product? How do they handle it? And you use that in your risk assessment, in the description, in the IFU, and all the people that are around the patient and the physician while they're doing the operation or whatever it is with this new product will have learned through the usability on how to navigate. So I think that goes hand in hand and it's really helpful to both of the processes because the usability also needs input from the real, you know, I would say the real world. I don't mean that negatively, but... The actual use environment. Yes, <laughs> To the simulated. When you then learn something from the operating theater, it goes back into usability and going to be revalidated to avoid for new mistakes. And I think what you're speaking to is a really good point. And now I'm just going to plug papers here. But I recently wrote another paper with another group with my dear friend Christy, and we spoke about failure. Failure early is what helps innovation. You need to fail early. And in this mindset these days that we have of having the perfect attempt from the get-go, that mindset destroys good Mm -hmm. development. Because if you're not willing and able to fail early, then what you're missing is all these improvement points. And that's what you and I often discuss with the usability. If we had done a small study with just a couple of people and just put it in people's hands, but in in environments that are realistic, not just giving it to your friend at home or not just giving it to the project manager of another project, or worse, even people in the development team who have already seen some of these concepts who are completely biased by it. If you've not done that, then what ends up happening is you have these scenarios where you didn't even think like the user because you're not the user. And if you Mm. don't think like the user, then you're not going to see some of these things. And when we speak about failure in our paper, failure as a path to innovation and resilient outcomes will be presented at HFES this October in case you want to come and see the live presentation. Thank you, everybody. If you don't set yourself up to consider failing as a design input, 
and as an open welcome concept, then you're missing out on these exact things that you're speaking about. If you don't see how it works in the actual use environment and you haven't done the in-depth evaluation of it from a usability point throughout the entire development, what you get to is exactly what you're speaking about. You'll notice them. You'll discover them. Nobody's saying you're not going to discover them. Nobody's Mm -hmm. saying these products go on the market without discovering this. So let me just take that out of everybody's mind. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is they are discovered so late that from a development aspect, you now are looking at extra time, extra resources, more complicated processes even, rewriting documentation, rerunning activities, possibly even falling back in phases in your development. Like you thought you were ready for phase four. Nope, you're going to the beginning of phase three because we have to repeat a couple of things. So often that's also something that I love talking to you about is the ROI, right? Return of investment on usability. Everybody is at the end in validation. Everybody has no money, has no time, yeah. you know, submission is coming up and everybody's pushed and deadlines and we got no more budget. You should have thought about that because what's yeah. going to happen now is you're going to go cheap. You're going to go fast. We all know what that means. Yeah. There's lots of different things you can do. You can repeat things, as we just said. You can add things or worst case scenario, you have to deduct from what you thought your product was going to be and then create version two. And this goes back to life cycle management. Maggie, who I've had on the podcast before, she spoke about life cycle management and how human factors is also a part of that. And that's interesting that people just don't see it that way. I Um, think also from a clinical, one of the focus justifications is the benefit risk assessment. And if your risk and also your benefits needs to be both qualitatively and quantitative, they need to be measurable. If you do not have the right picture of your residual risk, the size of it, the details around it, which you can get from usability, you will end up pushing your project into a clinical investigation and maybe not being ready for it because you do not have the right details. So your benefit risk analysis will come out too positively and then you cannot go out and invent new benefits right in the middle of so you end up in trouble and you can get pushback from the authorities and the ethics committee who say by the way we see an increased rate of whatever you cannot continue your study go back and so that's where i see that usability and the whole validation aspect of having focus on that not just verification but really a solid analysis work of what you want to achieve with this product and where you're going to collect the data points from so you are sure when you go to that final step that you will not have a mismatch of your benefit risk analysis and it's in all of the documents more or less in under the mdr it says in the end it says your benefit risk assessment do you have it under control have that because you release it but then you meet real life and then you're in trouble. Sometimes you're in trouble. Let's not romanticize it. When we go whoopsie doopsie. Yeah. <laughs> I always go back to this funny thing of when you don't even have intended users definitions aligned. And 
I love how you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, then when the usability expert comes in and your development team has fought tooth and nail and argued for six months about the definition. And then I come in and I'm like, have you considered X, Y, Z? And then everybody looks at me as if I'm put there just to annoy them. But at the end of the day, that's what I'm there for, for me to say, have you thought of how you're going to get your product in the Mm. intended user's hands? Do you really think that's how it's going to go? And what I think would be easiest to say, or I feel like there's two categories, like it's either they've been written too detailed that you're limiting who can use it and that you need specified training and X number of years of experience Mm. and you need to have XYZ title. And let's be very clear, that can be the case for very specialized products. Mm. Or it's written so generic that, wait, are you saying anybody can do this who works in a hospital? Anybody who has a medical background? Because it's very different. The the tech is going to approach things very differently than the surgeon. So I think that's also one of the areas that I think the FDA has handled very nicely, as well as the MDR, with being so specific now on user groups and saying that there are more than just three, meaning healthcare professionals, lay users, and patients. Like, there's more than three. Mm -hmm. There's actually the nurse, the surgeon, the doctor, the prescriber, the pharmacist, the radio tech, the ultrasound tech. We could go on and on, right? But there is a specified detail on every user that makes them distinct. And so it's very interesting to then see when you come in as a human factors person, as you say, who brought her in. And then very simply, I say, okay, who do you want to distribute your product? to? Who do you want to use it? Who's supposed to be using it? And obviously, a lot of times dollar signs work. How many do you want to sell? Because if you make it that limited, then you've got five sales a month. That's about it. But we don't even have to go that far. So those are some of the things that you and I often discover that it's like weird, too detailed or not detailed enough. They just think of it too limited, too much tunnel vision because that's their product. That's what they are developing. That's what they've been working on. It gets very complicated when the inventor is involved or it's written so generic because they're trying to solve everything with one. Mm. That's also not the way to go about it. But I think this is a really good example of what you and I always talk about is had we all talked at a different point, we could have solved this in two conversations Mm. instead of 22 or two minutes opposed to 22 months. I think that's one of the big takeaways for us was always, yeah, we all know the early integration and listening to the other teams and a great structure project team is all wonderful. But putting that in practice is actually not as easy as most people think, which is why in our paper, we literally call out as silly as it is, but we literally give a list of like pitfalls and good practices in it. How do you make that happen? What is a good practice to integrate this? And what is a pitfall? How do you can overcome that? And not only do we, of course, want to encourage people to read it, but I I wanted to take the last couple of minutes and give you the mic because I know this is your passion. When we talk about if you could have the optimal setup between clinical, usability, risk, how would you envision it? If you 
literally had a wish wand and you could be like, boop, magic. <laughs> I would wish that the optimal would be to sit, you know, very early stage before too much is put together. But of course, there should be a concept, there should be an idea, and there should be someone who carries the idea, but also who has the courage and the patience to be challenged. You know, someone who invented very smart device is often a little, you know, <laughs> it requires uh, some Keeps courage. Keeps it tight to their chest, right? Mm -hmm. They think they yes. know that. And to work with someone very passionate, but they're also very open-minded. They do understand if you, you know, the respect around the experience that you bring in uh, from, you know, have been doing this for a long time. And that also respect that there is the research and then there is the development. And I often say that the development is more about the paper, which is really boring for the researchers. But we cannot, you know, I cannot work with the papers if I don't have someone with a good idea. But the guy or the lady with a good idea should also say, you cannot move your good idea forward if you cannot describe it properly. Having a team where that respect is there and that we all are being challenged that normally gives the best documentation and the best products because the input back into the development of the product will improve it. And we will also improve by being challenged on our justifications and how we put our rationals together. We'll make sure that we succeed towards the end when we are going to talk to the authorities. But we need all to be present. And I do think clinical and usability are often left out of these initial discussions because it's expensive and they just make it more complicated. And I disagree. <laughs> you and I both. The stories we could tell. I think when you say exactly that, nobody's saying that these startups or inventors or whatnot shouldn't be doing what they're doing. What we're saying is literally there is... Funnily, surprising to everybody, but there is a reason why everybody has a role on the R&D team. Surprisingly, these roles come out of very solid, mm -hmm. robust backgrounds. There's reasons why you have these people on the teams. And I think what's important to say and that rounds our conversation really nicely, rolls it up at the end is... Everybody has a role. Everybody mm. has a specialty and expertise. The inventor comes with the idea. They have a vision to make something better for the patient or for the surgeon or for the nurse or whoever, lay caregiver. They have a vision to improve a medical situation and they have the acumen. They have the intelligence. They have the background. They have this genius idea. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's an idea. And that idea has to go into a concept. And that concept has to go into an actual plan for an actual product. And what we're saying is everybody has their role and responsibilities and specialty, but we have to have all of them 
at the Mm. table. It doesn't Mm. help that the inventor sits there and the inventor thinks, I can do this by myself because I programmed computers for 10 years so I can write the database myself as well. No, you're the doctor. You came Mm. with the idea. Please let the people who do the computering, let's Mm. just call that the computering, Mm. do the computering, okay? Mm. Because they're special Mm. experts in that. And please let the usability person put their two cents in because when you look at it from that perspective, things look different. And please Mm. let the clinical specialist come in and look at it from their perspective because they know how clinical trials are set up. They know what works, what doesn't work. They know the laws, the regulations. And so everybody has their purpose. And I think when that is forgotten or worse, sideswept, that's when you get into these little bit of risque and tedious situations where you don't have the comprehensive view and you don't have the details because you can't. It's just in medical device development. Let me be very clear. There's a reason why everybody has their specialty. And there's a reason why human factors people actually have a human factors degree. And we come from the human factor science. We're not just a moderator who moderates studies. Like we come from a science where we apply psychology mm. to engineering and mm. benefits the products. Mm. Same as the clinical expert they come and apply that or the engineer who will tell me there's times when I was told by an engineer here that's wonderful but that doesn't work and I'm like damn it why not let me tell you something about mechanical engineering it's happened before because we all have our grandiose ideas and visions and we sometimes forget that we need the input of the other and I think that sums it up very well when you speak of that actual incident where you have that situation that you just mentioned. Yeah, but you didn't think of this. And I think that's what you mean because we've talked about this so many times about the ultimate or the optimal setup where Mm. everybody just has a seat at the table at the Mm. same time and gets to put their stuff, their expertise and their mind and their Mm. thoughts into the process from the get-go. What's important to say is you said it earlier, you said that the humans at the end, we are the patient's advocates. Mm. Exactly. That's who we are. Mm. And if you don't forget that you are the advocate for the patient or the user, then you will always deliver. But if you somewhere in the process forget and assume this idea that you know better or situations where we got told usability Mm -hmm. has been done and then we get a report with a hundred pictures in it Mm. yeah no text it's one of these cases where i know at a certain point it will bite me in the butt (laughs) so to speak (laughs) because it was highlighted and not taken seriously and then you just have to document it and say yep that's how it is but we will move on and then uh, I know it will it will come back at a certain point this is where Helene and I thankfully get to say nope you can find somebody else (laughs) (laughs) yeah Helene is there something in Danish that kind of equates to the when I say in German not my construction site where we, it's not my problem. Is there something in Danish? 
I actually think we use the same expression, but um, I document it and then I say it's not my problem because somehow it comes back and someone will say, I think I told you and now this is really a difficult uh, situation for us. And I'm just, well, I told you, <laughs> you know, I'm quite sure I've seen so many examples where it comes back and you should have used the proven route basically but it is survival sometimes so i also have respect when people take these decisions they take the risk as long as it's not of the compromise of the patient yes yes that's what we would call the cma folder cover mm -hmm. my bleep that's what i would do make sure that you understand that everybody's there for a reason make mm -hmm. sure you respect others People are heard. It'll lead for greater outcomes, safer products, better budgets. We could go on and on. But I think everybody gets the gist at this point. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, that's a great ending. Thank you so much, Helena. It's always so lovely talking to you because we've been doing this for so many years. Mm -hmm. And every single conversation we have, we discover how we could improve yet another thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> our brains are always going yeah they're working hard it was a pleasure Heidi thank you very much for inviting me always good conversations thank you so much and I know for you it's good night it is good yeah. night oh yeah Helena is going on vacation pack your suitcase and send us a postcard I will <laughs> we'll talk to you soon and thank you for our listeners to sticking to a topic that isn't always so entertaining. Yes, clinical and human factors integration and risk management isn't the most exciting thing to talk about. But I think what we today managed to do was have a more in-depth conversation on how the MDR has evolved, including the usability requirements and how that came from something that has really been happening over the years and that Helena and I have noticed and that now we're happy to see FDA and MDR catching up. So the integration of early use risk analysis and the collaboration between clinical and human factors is something that definitely should be on the minds of research and development teams. And with that being said, let's get real, real uncomfortable. While I take a look back to give you a sneak peek of what's to come on our next episode and first ever segment of Let's Get Real. Do you cringe at the thought of failure? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Is it something you actually avoid, sometimes at all cost? Failure. Hmm. Tricky topic. Failure is often considered a vulnerability in Western cultures. It is taught to be avoided. Discomfort, embarrassment, humiliation, and shame are often associated with failure. While in other cultures, it is considered a part of the learning process. See, in those cultures, children are taught early on in school to welcome failure as something to learn from, revel in, and rally around to overcome together. To fail is the process that leads to achievement. It is imperative one experiences failure, if only to understand the juxtaposition of accomplishment and success. Failure 
is a necessity to growth, to evolve. And as human factors experts, we understand this process. We apply human-centered thinking to find an optimal solution for the various challenges we are presented with. We understand trial and error concepts, and that only through the application of an iterative process we can reveal and identify the vulnerabilities in our thinking, our design, and our engineering. We recognize the necessity of collecting robust data, not only to support our proposed solutions, but to also validate their outcomes and ensure safety and effectiveness of such for its intended users. However, when it comes to our own thoughts and concepts of achievement, we're often stuck in a negative loophole of failure, equating it to a zero-sum game. The trial and error approach is an exercise because we subscribe to this myth of success on the first try. We avoid risks and reach for mental models of success existing in the absence of failure, potentially closing doors of opportunities that might have presented themselves along a rockier road. This exercise in failure avoidance stifles our potential and personal growth. We become risk averse because we're taught that being vulnerable is a failure mode and only a winning outcome matters. We become outcome focused. I used to be a runner, a marathon runner, never finished one. But does that make me a liar? Does me failing to finish make me less of a marathon runner? See, your definition of success is driving your weighing of facts and truths. Fact is, I used to run for hours, many times the distance of a marathon. Have I ever finished an official race? No. Have I attempted to? Yes, many of them. But you're allowing my failure of finishing the official race on one specific day to determine whether you accept my truth of being a marathon runner or not. See, human factors is the study of humans factoring into our world and societies and how humans influence their surroundings. See, whether it is the human factor in design, interaction, limitation, performance, whatever, we study the effect the human has on and within. We understand to err is human. In medical device development, human factors engineering is applied via a risk-based approach to develop safe and effective devices. We design solutions to prevent use errors from leading to adverse events and catastrophic outcomes. We effectively use trial and error to evaluate and test our solutions, revealing functional vulnerabilities, potential risks, and associated harms to the user. This process is designed to mitigate residual risks to create products and systems that ultimately outweigh their risks and provide benefit to its users. We find the optimal balance between risk and benefit when it comes to medical device development, yet 
When it comes to our own lives and careers, we can lose ourselves in negative thinking and fear of failure. In these instances, the search for security circumvents failure, which stifles growth and progression. Success cannot be achieved in the comfort of security and the absence of failure. And whether or not you like it, in life, you have to fail in order to learn, progress, and evolve. And along the way, you pick up tools throughout that process, tools that allow you to cope, deal, and evolve from your failures. Because the only way to strengthen resilience, safety, and effectiveness in anything, whether it is in the design of a device or in your relationships and ideals in life is through trial and error. You have to be willing to keep trying, failing, coping, getting back up and right back at it, learn from it, progress, improve the weaknesses in your design and build on the strengths of it. You have to have the courage to throw out what didn't work, change direction if needed, reassess, adapt and adjust, redefine, redesign, evaluate, and refine if needed again, and reevaluate again, and repeat as many times as needed until you achieve optimal and resilient outcomes. Yes, keep your foundation. But be brave and be bold enough to implement your newly discovered learnings and your new definitions and marry them to ultimately build something even greater, safer, more innovative, and more effective. Because ultimately, both innovation and resilient outcomes are not achieved on your, or for that matter, any first attempt. Again, success does not exist in the absence of failure. Just because you think I failed at running marathons doesn't mean I think I failed. Did it suck to fail and not reach the finish line? Yes. But did it make me give up? No. Why? Because it was just one attempt of hundreds. And those miles... Those count more than reaching any finish line. So next time you consider yourself a failure or your design of failure, ask yourself how many times you've tried to succeed and improve on it. If the answer is one time, then frankly, you didn't fail. It was just an attempt. You simply didn't get it right the first time, but you didn't fail. Learn how to distinguish between the two because the true meaning of both live in two different sets of thinking and definitions. And with that, I hope this has piqued your interest and you are excited and looking forward just as much as I am to yet another great discussion next time on Safe and Effective where Christy and I get real uncomfortable for a moment talking about failure and how our thinking around it limits not just innovation, but our entire lives. 
All right, folks, that's it for today. Another fabulous discussion today. Please do share your thoughts with us and comment wherever you're listening to today's discussion. And please do support the show and leave us a five-star review. Please tell all your friends about us and maybe even consider supporting the Human Factors Cast Network on Patreon. Links to all of our socials and our websites are in the description of this episode. Thank you again, Helena, for being on the show today. It is much appreciated, and I am most thankful for you gifting us your time today. As for me, I've been your host, Heidi Merzad, and you can find me across all social media at HFUX Research, as well as our show's social media at Safe Effective Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, stay safe and effective. <laughs>